where you are in life, whether you've been married 20 years, whether you've married 20 minutes, whether you are not married, whether you're single, whether you're preparing to get married, you know, we got to need to look to the scripture to see what God's word says. Um, because I think that, you know, like anything in life, we are constantly being told what something is according to the world. And we need to undo all the brainwashing that damage has been done for years as unbelievers. And so let us read in chapter 5, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, for his, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God in heaven, once again we bow before your word. We seek your word to be fed this morning. We seek to hear from you. Speak to our hearts, O Lord, as the very song we sang. And I pray that our hearts would be tender and receptive and humble before thee. And, O oh Lord, we pray that your word would sanctify and renew us and that we would see the importance of the gospel in our marriages. We pray that we would see the importance of the gospel in our lives. And we pray that we would see that Christ, O oh Lord, is, is going to be proclaimed by the way we live. And I pray, Father God, that each and every person here today would receive the words of this sermon and apply to themselves in whatever way, in whatever uh, a part of life that they are called to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, I pray, O oh Lord, also from my mind and my heart. My mind, O oh Lord, seems to be not feeling clear today. I pray that you'd clear it up and take away the fog and help me to speak forth thy word with truth, with clarity, with conviction. In Christ's holy name, amen. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I have been to many weddings in my life, and I've been to different kinds of weddings. Tony's wedding was one wedding the other day, and I've been to uh, weddings that uh, are in different places of the country. I've been to very extravagant weddings, in fact. Um, 
Uh, my cousin got married some years ago, and I don't think I've ever been to an extravagant wedding more than that. Um, but as anyone could tell you, getting married and being married are two different things. Uh, the wedding day goes by pretty quickly. And when the dust settles and the clothes are packed away and the food is no longer there and you are left as a husband and wife, the meaning and the significance of your marriage will be determined by what you know to be true. Many people fall in love and when they decide to get married, they enter into marriage, unfortunately, very lightly without a knowledge or concept of what marriage is and when the honeymoon is over and reality sets in and expectations are disappointed, things quickly deteriorate. Because of this, as you notice, there's an increasing demand in our day and age for marriage seminars, marriage books, marriage conferences. Um, In fact, every pastor that you could think of, every celebrity pastor that you could think of that we know, um, both in the reform world and non-reform world, have a book on marriage. There's a reason why, because there's a need, there's a demand for it. In fact, when we look at it, marriage counselors also are in very high demand. Some married couples, when they're looking for counseling, can't even get a counselor because they're so busy. Why is this such a topic of interest? It's, it's very simple. Marriage is challenging. It's, it's not easy. Why? Why is it not easy? How come two people fall in love and why are there difficulties? Shouldn't it just be bliss and happiness all the time? Well, the truth of the matter is when two people get married, you get two sinners, two broken individuals with sinful attitudes and sinful backgrounds, and they come together, and if they do not have the proper view and understanding of marriage, they're going to bring those poor attitudes and behaviors into the marriage, it's going to create conflict, and it's going to create difficulty. And so that is the truth, that everybody is a sinner, everybody's broken, And everybody has areas they need to grow through and improve upon. And so while marriage is a tremendous blessing, it's an institution that benefits people, it benefits their children, it benefits society, we should know that marriage is not a Cinderella story. You don't kiss Prince Charming, get the glass slipper and live happily ever after. It's life. And life is about work, it's about discipline, and it's about commitment. It's about dying to self. And that's the things about marriage that you don't often hear. I want you to know this, though. Marriage is a gift from God. It is a gift from God, and it has been undermined, and it has been attacked in the last 50 years. The divorce rates are higher than ever, and people see marriage as nothing more than the wedding day itself. People see it as a legal contract, rather than an expression of love. And in today's sermon, I want to undo some of those poor ideas. Let me give you an example of some of the poor ideas of marriage. A recent report by the University of Virginia's National Marriage Project concluded the following. Listen to this. Less than a third of high school senior girls and only slightly more than a third of boys seem to believe that marriage is more beneficial to the individual than single life. Attitudes about marriage today are cynical and negative as you can get. Perhaps this has a lot to do with the fact that most people today grew up in broken homes, broken by divorce, because for the past 40 years, the divorce rate has been higher 
than 50%. And such pessimism persists. It makes people put off marriage even longer until they're older. And as a result, it makes the prospect of committing to someone as bleak as possible. The question is, is marriage even relevant anymore? With so many people cohabitating and living in common law marriages, is it even necessary? Is it even good? Well, it depends on how you define it. If you define marriage, and I want to give you two different propositions today. There's the me marriage, which is the marriage of the world. And then there's the Christ marriage, which is the marriage that God calls us to. If you're looking at things merely from the me marriage, the marriage is not really too good. But if you're looking at things from the perspective of Christ, marriage is a glorious thing. It is, it is a tool. It is a, it is a means by which God sanctifies and grows us into his likeness. And so let me first address the me marriage, the wrong way of thinking. And I didn't develop this, but this is actually a term that's used by a lot of psychiatrists today to describe marriage who have put off the old ways of thinking and seen marriage as a social construct for the benefit of society and family and the individual and see it more as a way of enhancing ourselves and enhancing uh, a life. Now, for most of Western civilization, the purpose of marriage was to create a framework of lifelong devotion between a husband and wife, a, a solemn bond where each party subordinates their impulses and desires and, and puts them aside for the greater good of the relationship and the greater good of society. This is why scripture tells in Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is held honorable among all. Therefore, it's the essence of, of marriage when you bring two people together in a covenant relationship. There's a mutual love and edification. And ultimately, any thriving society is determined by the success of the family because children empirically succeed and do much better in an environment where mother and father are together in a healthy, stable environment. The more the family falls apart, the more society falls apart. The family, the marriage unit is the bedrock of society. You pull that out and society crumbles. And so what are we seeing happen around us? As we see the destruction and the falling apart of society in America today, we can link it directly to the falling apart of the family. You see, this goes to the modern view of the me marriage. And the me marriage is simply looking at marriage as a legal contract for the seeking of mutual personal fulfillment, self-enhancement, and self-actualization, all byproducts of the post-postmodern era. In fact, when you ask most young people today, what are you looking for in a potential uh, mate to marry? And they'll say two things. Number one, sexual attractiveness, and number two, personality. The number one reason when polled young people is that sexual attractiveness is the number one reason. In other words, we put everything based on the flesh and aesthetics. And as I'm going to show you in a little while, aesthetics and someone who lives merely for aesthetics lives merely for the thrill of the moment and doesn't understand the deeper implications of what a covenant relationship is. Furthermore, this creates an extreme idealism that in turn leads to discouragement when someone realizes there's no one out there good enough for you. If all you do is live for marriage that is about me and enhancing my life and actualizing my life and fulfilling my life and making me happy and satisfying my demands, I got news for you. No one will ever find a spouse 
This idea of the soulmate is something that has developed in our recent society. Oh, I'm looking for my soulmate. I got news here. There's no such thing as a soulmate. That is rooted in pagan society. It's rooted from pagan mythology. God determines who we marry and he never makes a mistake. I think this is also compounded by the consumer mentality that has permeated so much of our Western society. We've seen this in churches, right? The consumer-vendor relationship. I had a couple of young girls visit our church several years ago. They walked in the door and I introduced myself and I was asking them uh, how they were doing. They said, oh, we're shopping for a church, right? We're shopping. And in the same way, people are shopping for a husband or shopping for a wife. This sets up the consumer-vendor relationship, This is that the relationship will last as long as the vendor provides a good service to me at an acceptable cost, right? I I have bought a house two years ago, and in the purchase of that house, it came with a pool. I wasn't looking for a pool. I didn't want one because I knew the headaches that come with it. What I did not know is that pool service companies in Westchester County are horrible. And, and, and most of these companies do not need your business. And they will treat you like trash and you have no choice but to deal with them because no one else will do the job. It's actually one of the most horrifying things I've had in this experience. But generally speaking, when you do business with someone, they provide a service and you expect the service at the lowest cost possible. That's a consumer-vendor relationship. Now, when people come into a relationship with that attitude... It's a nightmare because I come into the relationship saying I want as much as I can get out of this relationship at the lowest cost possible. In other words, I want you to give me as much as possible and I don't want to give, I want to give very little. I want a bargain. I want to chew down. I want a cheap price. If that's the mentality we bring into a marriage, the problems are unending. If everyone thinks in such a way, you're going to have a catastrophe. Tim Keller comments in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, which I found one of the most influential books I've ever read on the topic and had a big part of influencing the sermon. He says this, a marriage is not based, a me marriage is not based on self-denial, but on self-fulfillment. We require a low or no maintenance partner who meets all your needs while making no claims on you. Simply put, people today are asking far too much in a marriage partner and they're willing to give far too little. These views are unrealistic. These views are unrealistic because they require two completely well-adjusted individuals with little in the way of emotional neediness of their own ca- or, or, or have no character flaws to work on, and that simply doesn't exist. In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, Keller points out that the answer to his this tragic viewpoint was described by Duke University ethics professor Stanley Hauerwaus. He says this, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption that there is someone just right for us to marry and that of we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks the crucial aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, we are not the same people we were after we entered it. 
The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger you're married to. And so what this tells us is that going into marriage, we have to have realistic expectations. Not of the consumer mentality, but going into it with the understanding that I am marrying a flawed, broken individual. I am a flawed, broken individual. And by the grace of God, I am going to learn to love this person for the rest of my life to the glory of God and for the good of my own being and his or her own being. Are we going to be differences? Of course. Will there be Will there be arguments? Of course, because we're sinners. I often like to think of two people in a marriage when they have conflict. What is it? Both are standing on their ground saying, my kingdom come, my will be done. It's a conflict of kingdoms, essentially. It's not until we say, thy will be done, thy kingdom come, that we truly understand what marriage means. Ultimately, such a view of marriage is rooted in selfishness and self-centeredness. It has nothing to do with Christ. Wherever self reigns, there will always be problems. And sooner or later, someone is going to have to give in. If you have two people that are utterly selfish, there will be nothing but catastrophe. Someone has to humble themselves. Someone has to cave in. And even if the person caves in and the other continues and persists in their selfishness, the person who humble and gives in will grow a resentment and bitterness of living in a one-way relationship. It takes two people to make a marriage work. But most importantly, we have to understand the view of marriage is not for self. God intended marriage to be a display of the gospel. And that brings me to my second point, the purpose of marriage. Going back to Ephesians 5, look at verse 31 Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so, this verse 32 says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Notice that word, mystery. This mystery is profound, and it refers to Christ in the church. What Paul is doing is quoting from Genesis. He's quoting from Genesis, referring to God's original design in marriage, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. This was always the design and purpose of marriage. One man, one woman, cleaving together, becoming one, the two become one flesh. And Paul says this is a great mystery. The word mystery in ancient Greek doesn't mean like a murder mystery, a whodunit. Mystery means something that has been concealed and that has now been revealed. It has been made known. And what Paul's saying is that now we know finally the true meaning and significance of what God designed marriage for. And the significance and design that God made marriage for was to picture and to image the beauty of the gospel in the relationship between Christ and the church. He says that's the mystery. This refers to Christ and the church. The church meaning the church universal, the body of Christ, all believers in Christ who've been redeemed, the elect, the bride of Christ is seen as one unit and married to Jesus Christ. We, brothers and sisters, are married to the Lord through faith. We are one with him, joined to him by the Spirit. And this profound mystery, this beautiful mystery of the a divine mystery of Christ and his mystic union with the church is portrayed 
in the marriage union. So what does marriage tell us then? That's, that, if that becomes the basis of what marriage is designed for, then we learn a lot about what the character of marriage looks like and the purpose of marriage, and it goes right back to Christ. Christ, verse 25 says, he gave himself up. He gave himself up. He gave up everything. He left the throne in heaven. He left the Father's right-hand side. He left the glory and the worship of angels. And he came to this world and he took on human flesh and took the form of a servant, the scripture tells us. He came here for not just the purpose to walk around Jerusalem and Galilee for three and a half years preaching, but he came here to die, to give of himself in his life and to give himself literally to die for his bride, to die for the church. Mark 10.45 says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for many. Do you see where I'm going with this? Marriage isn't about fulfilling my desires. Marriage is about dying and giving of myself to another person. Marriage is about self-sacrifice. Marriage is about pursuing the good of another person, not for my glory and benefit, but for the benefit of that person and the glory of God. That's what love is. Love is not a tingly feeling you get in your spine and you feel you know, uh, this euphoria come over you when you're with someone. Those are feelings that come and go. You know what love is? Love is a verb. Love is an action. Author and speaker Paul Tripp gives us a biblical definition of love in his book and subsequent marriage conference, What Did You Expect? And he calls it a cruciform definition of love. Now take this, he says, love is a willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. Let me repeat that. Love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. This is Christ-like love. This is cruciform love. Notice, number one, it's willing It's not forced. It's not compulsory. Number two, it's self-sacrificing. It's saying if I'm getting something in return, it's not self-sacrificing. If I'm I'm merely making a bargain, I'll do this for you if you do that for me, that's not self-sacrificing. That's reciprocation. If it's truly for the good and the benefit of another, then it's generous and free like the grace of God. And finally, the person who receives it is undeserving. Love is not love if it only only merits it or calls us to. And of course, when, when we are loving, we're going to be more lovely. But the Bible never says we're to stop loving someone when they're not lovely because Christ loves us even in the state of our sin. There are many times that I am an obnoxious odious offense to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he loves me unceasingly and unstopping. That is the love of Christ. Tripp says this, if we wait for the person to be deserving of our love, to actually love them, we will spend most of our marriage not loving that person. 
But isn't this what Christianity is all about? Philippians 2, 3 through 8, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is the general rule of Christianity. We're not to live merely for ourselves, but for the good of others. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christian marriages are to exemplify Christ-likeness. And both the husband and wives are called to this. The husband is called to Christ-likeness in a more real sense in his headship to give of himself for the greater good of his wife and his marriage and his family. He is to love his wife like himself. The wife, on the other hand, is called to submission and acquiescence to her husband. It is the yielding away of her own selfish ambition to the greater good of her husband and the marriage. Both the husband and wife are called to die to self, to live for the good and benefit of the other person. Do we always live up to this? Absolutely not. And this is why we challenge ourselves. It's why we need a sermon to regularly hear on this so that we may be spurred on to good works because the me marriage is the paradigm of the world and it's what you see when you watch television. It's what you see when you watch a rom-com. It's what you see when you look at social media. It's all the me marriage. It's about me. And when we're in the word of God, we realize it's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about Christ. Your marriage is about Jesus Christ. Your marriage is either going to preach the gospel and tell a beautiful story about Jesus, or it's going to pervert and tell a lie about Jesus. What does our marriage say about Christ? Thus, the secret to a healthier marriage is a healthy view of the gospel. If we don't understand the gospel, you won't understand marriage. And I can tell you this, the more you understand the gospel, the more you understand how much you've been forgiven, the more you understand what Christ has done for you, that you have uh, everything in your life is because of the grace of God and that you are undeserving the more gracious and loving you will be as a husband and wife. If you forget the gospel or you have a flawed view of the gospel, if you think the gospel is all about you and it's not about Christ, if you think it's just about God because I'm such a good person, I'm so nice, he wants to deliver me and give me heaven and I deserve all this, and, and you just have a flawed view of the gospel and a flawed view of life, your marriage is going to be a mess. Your marriage will be characterized by selfishness, conflict, and legalism. You know, it's interesting because the gospel is about free grace. Apart from the gospel, your view of life is law. You know what law is? Do this and you'll be rewarded. I'll give you this if you do this. 
And if I do this, I expect a reward. It's about doing, 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 and getting, getting, getting. It's, it's a merit system. And the gospel tells us we have no merit whatsoever. The merit belongs all to Jesus. Whew. Thirdly, marriage is also a relationship built on covenant love. This is the most important thing. This is the power of marriage. It's not about feelings. Feelings come and go. They wane. What makes a marriage last is the covenant model of marriage. It is is about agape love. It It is making a promise to love a person regardless how we feel, regardless of the conditions, and regardless of the circumstances. Which is why when we do the marriage vows, as I did with Tony and Naomi the other day, we often say we promise to love each other in sickness and health and riches and poverty till death to us part. Because what it's saying is that in marriage, you're going to face tough times. In marriage, there's going to be times where you don't feel like you felt when you were dating. There's going to be times in marriage when the trials of of finances, the trials of children, the trials of life are going to test the strength of your marriage. And you're going to say, I just give up. But you have to remember the promise, the commitment you made for better, for worse, in sickness and health till death do you part. Paul's not here today, but no one was more of a shining example to me of a faithful husband than Pastor Paul Fry. Many things I saw over the years, but what he did for Daisy in those final years of her life, the way he took care of her, most men would just put their wife in a nursing home and say goodbye. Paul literally sacrificed. He was an old man. He is an old man. Do you have any idea the amount of work it took for Pastor Paul to take care of Daisy? I don't think any of you realize, unless you've had a sick relative who's lived with you at one time. Paul still talks about Daisy with great affection. There was a man who was a true model, an example who we could all seek to live up to. Because Paul understood it's about a covenant, it's a commitment. You know what he said to me? He says, I promised Daisy the day I married her, that I would take care of her all the days of my life and I'm going to be as good as my word. That's what Paul said. You see, when we talk about covenant, God always makes covenants with us. There's the covenant of works in the garden. God, there's the covenant of grace that was first realized with Abraham. There's the Mosaic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and of course the new covenant by which we have our relationship in Christ Jesus. God always deals with humanity in covenant relationships. And a covenant is based on a commitment and a promise that two parties make. God is faithful. God keeps his covenant. God never breaks his promise. We may be faithless. We may fall. But God is faithful to the very end. God is committed. He sticks to us no matter what. And that kind of covenant love is what the marriage is predicated on. It's maintained by a promise. The reason why we stick together through the thick and thin of things is because I made a promise and I'm going to do it. 
Like Paul said, I'm going to be as good as my word. It's a blend of law and love. You see, the wedding is not a celebration. The wedding is not a celebration of how you feel about someone at the moment. You know what a wedding is? A wedding is a celebration of how you will love, be faithful to, and be true to a person regardless of the circumstances or how you feel in the future. The wedding day is a celebration about your covenant fidelity in the future. Is not about how you feel at the moment. So what are the benefits of covenant love? Number one, there is a legal side that shows how important the relationship is. There's a reason why we have a legal binding in a marriage. There's a reason why we get a marriage license and it's bound by and, and ratified by the state. It's a legal, it's a legal covenant. Because it shows us that marriage is more than just a casual relationship. This is more than just dating. And it should not be treated lightly. There's a sense of value built into the relationship when we see that it is a lawful vow. It's not only held in honor by God, but by the state and by the witnesses thereof. Number two of the benefit A vow keeps us from running away during hard times. You see, when you are bound by covenant, it gives people a chance to create stability so that when feelings come and go and and, and are fragile, we can grow stronger and deeper in our commitment to love to someone over time. It builds strength, it builds stability, and it builds a future. Thirdly, our vows... Our vows are important because it teaches us to sacrifice our freedom and opportunities for greater opportunities to be there for someone in the future who can trust you. And fourthly, there is a major benefit. When you are married to someone for a long time and you keep your vows, you actually get to know each other. You actually get to know each other. And no matter how many years you are married, you... You, you're learning your, your mate constantly. Me and Chloe learning things about each other 22 years in, and, and it's, still, it's still beautiful. It's still a blessing. And you develop and you build upon all those years that you have together. When you just go from relationship to relationship, you never have a chance to really get to know someone. The beautiful thing is when you're married for a long time, Sooner or later, you have nothing left to hide. You're vulnerable. Nobody knows me better than Claudia. Amazing she's still with me. Our spouses know us deeply with our flaws. They know us for years and they still love us. There's something profound about that. Are feelings important? I guess that's the question we were left with today. Where do feelings come in this? What about romance? You know what? When you commit yourself to a covenant relationship, the feelings come and go, but when the feelings are there, they're going to be deeper and more profound. And they're sustained. But love is more than feelings. 
It doesn't mean our feelings don't matter. But when you are committed, when you make a vow, when you are in a covenant relationship, when the feelings aren't there, you're still there together. If we wait for feelings to act, we will always be held hostage to the unpredictable and foul-weathered emotions we have. Nothing will help or enhance or fulfill romance in a marriage more than covenant fidelity. Let me explain with the help of Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard is one of my favorite philosophers. He, and his views are, are, are really help us to understand how human beings, how we think. He says there's three outlooks on life you can have. There's the aesthetic outlook, the ethical outlook, and the religious outlook. He says we're all born aesthetes, right? We're, we all are born to look at life merely from the aesthetic. And I think when you really look at the aesthetic compared to the ethical and religious, what you're really dealing with is the flesh and the spirit, the flesh and the spirit, the two, right? Because the world, right? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, this is all the world. But notice what he says about the aesthete, the one who looks things merely from the aesthetic. The aesthete doesn't ask if something is good or bad, but only is it interesting, Is it thrilling? Is it fascinating? Is it exciting? Is it entertaining? An aesthetic aspect is important to life. It's naturally part of it, but it does not dominate it. A person who lives life just based on what is thrilling and exciting and and, and interesting has no master of themselves. In fact, the person who lives merely for what is thrilling, interesting, fascinating, exciting, and entertaining, is a slave to their temperament, to their tastes, to their feelings, and their impulses. They are controlled by the flesh. Simply said, an aesthete cannot last in marriage. Guess what? We get old. In case you didn't know that. We get old. People lose their beauty. We gain weight. We get gray hairs. We get wrinkles. I'm trying, I'm not trying to make everybody feel bad here today. <laughs> the bottom line is beauty is fading. What matters is character. I was talking to Brother Jiven the other day. We were talking just about after the wedding, we were talking about marriage in general, and we were talking about this topic. And what matters most in marriage, Jibben said, is character, character, character. That's what matters. In other words, it's our promise and commitment to our spouse, to the marriage, that enhances our romance. Only with time and commitment does love grow and develop to one another. Let me conclude. Marriage is a two-way street. I'm looking at Tony and Naomi today. This message is as much for you as it is for all of us. But as you start your marriage, there's one of two ways you can go. And there's one of two ways we at Grace and Truth Church can go with our marriages. You can go the way of the me marriage and go through your marriage with high expectations and demanding of your spouse and be disappointed and get angry and bitter and have a lot of contention. 
Or you can go into your marriage and you at Grace and Truth here can have a marriage where you have a cruciform approach, where you die to self, where you see the gospel and you see Christ being the blazing example of who we are to be as husbands and wives. And we love and commit ourselves to our spouse for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for sickness and health. When I feel, feel it, when I don't feel it, forever to the glory of God. And here's the beautiful thing. When you commit yourself to a marriage the way God intended it, you will truly reap the reward and blessing of it. God will bless you. Your children will be blessed. Your life will be blessed. There's actually been studies done that those, the delight and blessing of marriage can only truly be experienced when we do it God's way. And when we do it God's way, as Pastor Paul had us singing yesterday at the men's Bible study, God's way is the best way. God's way is the only way. You can see him in his providence and grace protect, guide, and keep us. May this word settle into our hearts today. Let's pray. Oh, heavenly gracious Father, I thank you so much for this word. I thank you for my wife, oh Lord, and I thank you for the 22 years of marriage that we've had, and I, I praise you for that. I praise you for that covenant love that we have had, oh Lord. I thank you for the other marriages in this church that also, as I know that um, Tony and Marcia just celebrated 20 years of marriage, we thank you for them as well, Father. And, and Lord, I pray for the young married couples in our church. I pray for those who are just starting I pray for those who've been married a few years. I pray for those who are having good times and those who are having bad times. I pray that all the marriages this church would be held together, not by our own will, but by your grace. Help us to love each other more. Help us to die to self and help us to see the call to glorify you in our marriages. In Christ's name, 